tonight at the third and last evening of our special services. You're very welcome to Clock Mills Reformed Presbyterian Church. My name's Joel Lockridge and I'm the pastor here. These evenings we've been looking at the uh, book of Zephaniah and words from God's word. This evening we begin with hearing from God in his word in the, from the Bible. Uh, the book of Second Peter chapter 3. The previous two nights we read from Genesis. We saw that the first three chapters of Genesis are the building block and the foundation of the rest of God's word, the rest of the truth. The section we're going to read in Second Peter this evening explains to us not the start like Genesis but the end and what will happen at the end of time. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, writes this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And now we read from Zephaniah chapter 3, the verses that we've been looking at these last three evenings. Incredible verses. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. We had a reading of God's word there. We come on this, the last night of our special meetings, to some of the most staggering words in all the Bible. Many people have written wonderful things through all the years, from Shakespeare to Seamus Heaney, the poets, the playwrights, the philosophers. There are many wonderful things written in the Bible. We think of the vividry of the, the vivid imagery of the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. We think of the precision of Paul's theology, for by grace we are saved. We think of the drama of the stories, David and Goliath, Jonah, stories that so many of us heard as we were growing up. But tonight we come to what are perhaps the most amazing words ever penned. In some ways I think they single-handedly prove that the Bible is God's word. Because no mere human would ever put these words in the mouth of God. Throughout history, mankind has viewed the gods as beings to be feared and beings to be appeased. We were always trying to please the god. We were always trying to earn their love. No human would write words like this about the gods. And no human would put words like this in the mouth of God at this point in the story of the Bible, God's work amongst men and women. These are the words, Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What is it that makes these words so staggering? Well, first of all, it's the nearness of God. The Lord your God is in your midst. God is in their midst. Moses told God's people in Deuteronomy 4 verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The gods of the other nations were remote and distant. They were aloof and disinterested. But the true God is in the midst of his people. And just to highlight that tonight, or in in another sense, to draw back the veil, you are here amongst the people of God tonight, hearing the word of God, the living God is speaking. God is in our midst. We're in the presence of God tonight. He's unseen, but he's not unheard. He's speaking through the Bible. So they're incredible because of the nearness of God. Second reason these words are so incredible and staggering is that they speak of the mighty salvation of God. Every other religion tells you to save yourself, do this ceremony, perform this rite, pray a certain way, visit a certain place. Then you'll have done enough to be saved. And God says, no. I am the mighty one who will save you. I will intervene. I will act. I will rescue you. The the, the picture here is of a a mighty warrior, a a champion like 
Achilles and Hector in Homer's Iliad sent out to fight each other as representatives. Like the story of David and Goliath. Each army sends out a champion for a winner-takes-all battle mortal combat. And God says, I'm your warrior. I'm your champion. I'm your hero. I will fight. I will win. I will save. The mighty salvation of God. It's staggering. It's staggering because we are so hopelessly sinful and so hopeless in our sin. We can't rescue ourselves. But God rescues us. God rescues us. So they speak to us of the nearness of God. They speak to us of the salvation of God. But thirdly, the three images so incredible, so staggering that you would not write them. You would not come up with them yourself. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Here's the picture of a bridegroom delighting in his wife, thrilled about his wife, smiling from ear to ear because of his wife. We've all seen a groom standing here at the front of the church, uh, looking, straining, trying to get the first glimpse of his beautiful bride as she comes in the doors at the back. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Here's the love God has for his people. God's heart heart leaps with love like a groom's does on his wedding day. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Or, Or better perhaps, he will be silent in his love. Picture new parents standing in the dark. Standing in the quiet, not saying anything. What are they doing? They're just gazing at their little newborn. Just lost in love and adoration and wonder. Or or perhaps you can uh, remember back to a time sitting at the, the bedside of an elderly relative. They're sleeping and they're just so peaceful. And you're just sitting there gazing on them in love. Lost in thought, utterly absorbed. Here's the picture that's given us of God and his love. Utterly absorbed in adoration of us. He will be silent over you on his love. Third, he will exult over you with loud singing. Think of the football fans singing and lauding the winners. Think of the the joy of the crowd welcoming the soldiers home. This is a a noisy, tell-the-world celebration. This is God celebrating us. God telling others about us. He will exult over you with loud singing. Who would dare use these images of God's love for his people if they weren't from God? Who would dare put it in language like that? And it's even more staggering when you realise and when you remember the point in the story that these come at. Zephaniah writes these words sometime between 640 BC and 609 BC. Israel, God's people, have been in the promised land for 800 years and they've repeatedly fallen away from God, worshipped 
false gods and idols. They've said to the world around them again and again, your gods are better than our God. We want what you have. We want to worship like you worship. And God had sent warning after warning and they ignored all his warnings. And we're at the point in the story where after 800 years, God's patience has come to an end point and they're going to be conquered. They're going to be exiled, swept away from their homes because God needs to teach his disobedient children a lesson. And that's what Zephaniah is. Zephaniah's message is a message about the judgment that God is going to bring. And that this book, if you were to read it all, you would see that it's almost unrelentingly dark. He tells us that creation itself will be undone. Zephaniah 1 verse 2 and 3, God speaks and says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. The, the, the order that God made things in, in in the days of creation in Genesis 1 is here reversed. Everything that he made is being unmade. It's, it's almost like the very atoms themselves and the bonds that hold them together are going to dissolve. Creation itself will be undone. Zephaniah speaks of a coming day of disaster, destruction, distress. Uh, chapter 1 verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. You see the pictures he's giving? It's like a city being ransacked. People are in terror. There's panic. They're screaming. Later on he'll speak of people being disposed of like like waste out of the potty. It's going to affect all the world. In chapter 2 he takes us on a tour of the nations. And we see homes abandoned. We see cities being turned into desert. We see animals inhabiting the palaces of kings. We see the false gods of the nations utterly powerless. God says, therefore wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations. To assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This is the just judgment of a holy God. This is the just judgment of a good God on a sinful, rebellious world. This is an awful, but deserved day of wrath day of accounting we talk about apocalyptic scenes you think of our worst fears for uh, the coronavirus millions dead shops uh, looted the shelves empty the city's deserted the, the, the smell of burning everywhere the stench of death bodies decaying bodies lying unburied and that's something of the image here of God's wrath A day of distress is that day. A day of anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom. The closest that I've come to seeing anything like this was the footage of the Australian bushfires at the start of the year. 
people out of their homes. People made homeless. Black billowing smoke all across the horizon and every so often as you saw the footage you see the, the flames flare up in the smoke and the whole sky would be lit up and we said it was like an apocalyptic disaster and that's a little bit like this awful day of wrath and this awful day of judgement what, what they'll be like this is what the people are promised by Zephaniah and this then is language that the New Testament picks up by then, by the time that Jesus comes and the disciples write, the Israel had had its day of destruction and judgment. The city of Jerusalem had been captured and it had been destroyed. The people had been exiled to Babylon. But as the writers reflect on, on Zephaniah and other writers in the Bible, they look ahead to a greater day or a, a worse day. That's what Peter's talking about in those words that we read. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, there's that phrase that Zephaniah has and that Zephaniah uses. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed hear the language, the echoes, creation undone, fire, destruction, a revealing of the wickedness and the evil, the things that have been done. Here's a future day of judgment for sin. A day to which the horrible destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was only a pointer. It was only a foretaste. It's the day when the Lord Jesus comes again. It's the end of the world. A day when all that has been done will be seen. A day when all will be called to account. A day when those who tried to overthrow the rule of God will be judged and destroyed. You see, the day that Zephaniah speaks and paints in such unrelentingly dark, horrible, horrific terms, it's still to come. It's still to come it hasn't happened yet so how is it that, that God can say against all that backdrop he will rejoice over you with gladness he will be quiet over you in his love he will exult over you with loud singing you know, that's very different from what he said earlier I will pour out on them my indignation all my burning anger I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against me. Why this change of heart? Why this change of attitude? Why is it, how is it that God can deal with us like this? Because the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. God promised to come into the midst of them and promised to save. There's a verse earlier in the Bible that you're probably familiar with. It's read often at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
These are words that are spoken of Jesus at the time of his birth in the Gospels. These words are clearly understood to be about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And listen for the name given to this child. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This baby that is going to be born is Mighty God. The Mighty God present to save. The Mighty God in the midst of his people to rescue and redeem. The Mighty God present to save. But there's something weak and feeble about him. Seemingly weak and feeble about him, isn't there? Something weak and feeble about the baby. A baby? What about the mighty hero, the champion? There's something weak and feeble about the man as he grows. People who came to hear him, some of them had a sense of, is this it? You told me to come and hear the Messiah and and this is it? The carpenter from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? They turned away from him in disappointment. Picture and listen in for a moment to the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies and you hear the loud anguished cries and you think is that it this broken man weak and feeble his death on the cross seems weak and feeble to be crucified was to die the death of a slave and more than a slave to die the death of a rebellious slave crucifixion was the Roman way of reminding the people who was boss, who was in charge. It was a public humiliation and a display of Rome's absolute power over you and your people. And, and this one, this mighty one is crucified. It doesn't look mighty to save. It doesn't look like that at all. But what you don't see is the victory in all of that. You don't see the victory over sin, the great disease. You don't see the victory over Satan, the great enemy. You don't see the victory over death, even death, the great destroyer, the great separator, the the great ender. You don't see the victory that he wins in that death by that life. How is this humiliating, crushing death a victory? Well, at that moment... Satan is doing his best to defeat Jesus. And in many ways this is his one shot at victory. And he's like a a cobra raised up, poised to strike, the fangs bared. And he lunges and he strikes and the fangs strike and the fangs sink in deep. But even as he lunges, the, the, the foot is coming down on his head. And yes, the, the, a bite on your heel is painful. And the harder you step down, the more painful it is. But it's destruction for the snake. It's total destruction. It's death for the snake. His head is crushed. Just like the ancient prophecy said, Genesis 3, at the very start, the promise of a serpent crusher who would crush the snake at cost that pain to himself, but it would be deadly for the snake. And so by his death, he defeats Satan. 
But it's a victory over death as well. Death seems to have won. Death seems to have him in its hold. But three days later he rises. The tomb is empty. The, uh, the burial preparations have to be put on hold. He rises. It is arguably the greatest attested, best attested fact in all of ancient history. It's victory over death. It's victory over sin. The last of the unholy triumvirate. That day was darkness. The day of his death. A day of distress. It was a day of wailing. Because all the judgment that Zephaniah, that we read, all that judgment was poured out on him. God's day of judgment was happening on him, in him that day. He's experiencing an eternity of wrath. The, the, the burning anger of God in all eternity compressed into those hours to defeat sin. To pay the price for sin. And so what looks like weakness, it's the mighty one who will save. It's the mighty one who will save. See, his death drains the, the cup of God's judgment. It turns God's anger to love. It saves us from God's just and fair wrath. And that's why Zephaniah can write, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will ex- quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't it amazing that at one and the same time God is both the offended party that must punish sin so that there can be justice in the universe and the one who saves and then having saved us, he delights in us. He loves us. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. I know plenty of people who are looking for this. Maybe you're looking for love like this. Maybe you're looking for it in a relationship. You just want somebody to rejoice over you. Somebody to be thrilled that you exist. Somebody to just sit and gaze quietly at you and just adore you and be enraptured with you. Maybe some of us are looking for it in our career. That, oh, in my workplace, somebody would celebrate me and somebody would value what I do. And this is what you're looking for. Somebody to rejoice over you. Someone to adore you. Someone to exult over you. And what you're looking for, it's here. And it's found in God. And it's found only in God. And I I know people who are crushed because they never had this acceptance from or love from anybody. They were never good enough for a parent. They had no friend ever to, to look out for them and to be their friend. The one they thought would give this type of love and acceptance gave only hurt and pain. And I say to you tonight, here is what you're looking for. And you find it in God and in God alone. 
maybe you're here tonight and, and you don't want your family to suffer the way that you suffered or to experience the hurts that you experienced. You want them to know what it is to be rejoiced over, to be adored, to be celebrated. And as you get frustrated, frustrated by your failure, you try, you try to love them like this. But sometimes your words hurt. Sometimes you you, you, you feel, sometimes you crush them. And you see that crushed look in their face. Only God can give them love like this. Acceptance like this. Adoration like this. And here's the here's the crucial thing. This love lasts. This love lasts. It lasts through bitter circumstances. More than that, it's love that redeems bitter circumstances, hurts in our lives. It's love that redeems. It's love that lasts. It lasts through hard circumstances. It lasts through changes in us. We, we, we change, we falter, we waver. God's love is steadfast. It doesn't change. It lasts through our failures. We fall short. We're not what we want to be. We're not who we want to be. God's love lasts through our failures. And God's love lasts to all eternity. It lasts and it lasts and it lasts and it never stops. Here, friends, here's a love that is worth having. Here's a love that you are looking for. Here's a love that all the world is seeking. Here is love worth having. And this saviour, this mighty one, this loving one, offers this salvation to you. And it's like it's like you're currently holding a, a cup of putrid, stinking wrath. And Jesus says, let me take that cup for you. And he takes it and he tips it up and he, he drinks it all down to the very dregs. Will you give the cup to him? Will you give it to him with tears in your eyes? Tears that you ever rejected his love. Tears that your sin did that to him. Cost that. And will you reach out and by faith take him as this mighty saviour and say yes. Be my Lord and Saviour. Yes give me this love. Do you see the offer that's held out tonight? Wrath for love. A great exchange. Wrath for love. And not just any old love, but love like this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray as we draw to a close this evening. Great God in heaven, we bow our hearts before you now and we acknowledge the incredible love that you lavish on your people. We deserve wrath, we deserve sin, we deserve judgment. But you sent a mighty one to save. A child to be born who would grow, who would obey your law, who would be put to death in utter humiliation. Seemingly weak and feeble and yet 
winning a great victory over sin, paying the price, over Satan, crushing the head and defeating him, over death itself, the last enemy. We thank you that he is mighty to save and we pray that we would see the full wonder of what he has done and how truly staggering these words are. May we experience in our own lives, in our hearts, as we trust in him, as we repent and turn from our sins, him rejoicing over us, quietening us with his love, exulting over us with loud singing. Assure us, Lord, of your love. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.